It's September 21st, 2023. This is Rook. Episode 287 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, from Canada. Salam Sanazi, Sturud Barashuma. I hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Hello, Smart Pega Ganji, SPG, <laughs> the brand. Yes. I have a mixture of emotions mm-hmm. in the last few days. I'm for this show. I, yeah. You want to hear about my mixture yes. of emotions? I have ebullient excitement. Okay. And I have dire frustration and anger. Wow. Yeah. Some intense emotions. Quite a spectrum. It's not even a spectrum. It's just two <laughs> Polar extremes. Opposites. Yes. You ready? I'm ready. Which one do you want first? Um, bad news first. No. Oh, I'll okay. give you the Why good. Why do you ask? Ebullient excitement. Okay. Because the bad news takes longer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me get the good stuff out of the way. All right. First of all, mm-hmm. my team, Arsenal. Oh, okay. <laughs> Should have known. My team, it's it's only uh, within a few months, mm-hmm. people tuning in to hear news and information and ideas and conversations uh, about the Iranian diaspora. Right. We'll only be hearing about Arsenal. It's slowly, now it's at the top of the show, <laughs> slowly becoming a football uh, soccer program. My team, Arsenal, yes. got to the Champions League for the first time in a few years, right? Okay. We were in the, and played our first game, our Okay. Like none of the guys on the team know me, but <laughs> I consider us, you know, I'm part, part of, the of it. Team, right? Yes. Our first game uh, in the Champions League, 4 nothing to the Gunners, Arsenal. Okay. I wasn't sure. Congratulations. Yes. That's ex- that's ebullient excitement. I love them so much. They're young guys. They're all like 22, mm-hmm. 21 years old, and they're so good. And, you know, for long-suffering Arsenal fans, <laughs> this is wonderful. The other thing... I'm excited uh, excited about and perhaps more germane to today's program right. is the feature guest on today's mm-hmm. program. Yes. This is a uh, we've titled today's program The Architect Star from the Khuzestan Desert. Mm-hmm. Now you know that Khuzestan is close to my heart. Yes, I do. Why is that? Because you are also from Khuzestan. My father, that's correct. Now this person and her sister. Mm-hmm. Skill testing question. Uh-oh. This person and her sister, I'm asking you as if you don't know who the guest is <laughs> coming on the show. It would have been better if it was like that. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's a podcast called Smartless. Yes. And they surprise each other with who the yes, guest is. Yes. Then I could have done this right now. I could have cool. said, this person and her sister who have become world-renowned architects based in New York with a company founded by them, two women who founded this company you know, three or four decades ago, pioneers in the architecture industry, captains of modernism and and really you know, influencers in terms of the architecture they have done around the world, including in Iran now. Mm-hmm. They grew up in Khuzestan and more specifically in the desert. Yes. They grew up in the desert uh, and her inspiration, our guest today, mm-hmm. who, who you can guess. <laughs> I'm who, ready to answer. Yes, yes. Our <laughs> guest today got her inspiration to become a world-renowned architect whilst being in the desert in Khuzestan as a kid. This is back to the pre-Islamic revolution, mm-hmm. so back to the 70s, 60s, and 70s, I guess. Right. Gisu Hariri. Oh, I was going to do the whole oh, who go is ahead. Gisu Hariri, you oh, know, like wow. Jeopardy style. Oh, you have to say it like Jeopardy. Yeah. 
But right. now we have to explain what Jeopardy <laughs> is. Uh, Hariri and Hariri is the is Gisu and her sister. That's mm-hmm. the name of the company that has become this acclaimed global. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Gisu Hariri uh, joins me for a feature interview uh, from New York about her life, about how it all happened, and um, about her perspectives on what's going on in the world mm-hmm. these days, including, of course, the uprising in Iran. So yes. very excited to have her on the show. Ebullient excitement, <laughs> Pega, SPG. Yes. That's the first, now. Now we get to the, to the dire frustration and anger. The polar opposite. Travel to the other extreme. Yes. You know, I made a, a first of all, first of all, I think it's been, I think we've got to be real. Mm-hmm. It's been a shitty week for those who want democracy and freedom in Iran. And mm-hmm. I think that people either are so exhausted or have turned their attentions elsewhere, notwithstanding the one-year anniversary that mm-hmm. happened this past weekend, et cetera, of the killing of Maso Amini. But there just isn't the attention, I believe, certainly not globally, but even in the Iranian diaspora on what's going on. Otherwise, I think more people would have to come to terms with and speak out about just how shitty a week it has been. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just feels like there's a number of things that have happened that um, are are not positive in terms of the movement for freedom and democracy in Iran, uh, women, life, freedom, etc., And things that I don't think would have even been allowed in mm-hmm. terms of the tolerance of the global Iranian community. You know, the outcry would have been so great if these things had happened six months ago. So yeah. first of all, the, the, I mean, Raisi and his entourage, mm-hmm. the Iranian president and uh, the, the head of the regime and a bunch of these mullah guys are running around New York, <laughs> giving interviews, doing, you know, meetings speeches, meetings, whatever. And from what I understand, have been given special dispensation to come to you. In other words, mm-hmm. there there are these so-called you know uh, rules that we don't allow. You know that uh, um, this is like the IRGC terrorist list mm-hmm. and all of that that the U.S. has. That Anthony Blinken, I I read this. I don't know if this. I mean, it's got to be correct on some level because they've come to New York. Has actually given dispensation for these guys to come and travel to New York and do their speeches yeah. and attend the United Nations and all that. So you got that, you got $6 billion mm-hmm. as part of this U.S. deal, the hostage thing. I know you're going to talk about that as part of the roundup in a few moments, but but there's that, that the Islamic Republic regime has just put in its pocket $6 billion mm-hmm. as a product of the U.S. administration saying, okay, let's make this deal or whatever. And of course, this is supposed to be earmarked for humanitarian, humanitarian yeah. purposes, ha 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 ha, Hilarious. Uh, and then they're laughing all the way to the non-humanitarian spending. Mm-hmm. Um, a new, extremely aggressive and um, uh, what, would, what would you say? Uh, uh, Disgusting hijab law. No, I'm yeah. talking about the new hijab law. That's yeah. like extremely. It's this sort of next level mm-hmm. crackdown on freedom of people and women in Iran, etc. So all of these things are happening that lead to a, a pretty negative week in terms of the the accumulation of uh, of 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 stuff. Hey, you win some weeks, you lose some weeks, and <laughs> the battle towards the revolution, whatever. But one of the things that we've talked about, I want to cast you back to last week. 
mm-hmm. where we had a special edition of Rook that was the one year anniversary of the uprising. Yes. And we brought on 13 people from different fields, mm-hmm. of Iranian background in different parts of the world. Prominent folks, folks that we love, folks that we know are eloquent, mm-hmm. passionate, care a lot about the issue, have talked about it, have been very involved. Everyone from uh, a doctor like Dr. K to a famous iconic musician like uh, Farmaz Aslani mm-hmm. to uh, an academic and a women's rights activist like Fruduk Kanoni. All of these people came on the show, yes. right? And all of them, when asked the question, I sound like I'm blaming them, I'm just saying, all of them, when asked the question, what do we need to do? Well, sorry, what lesson have we learned mm-hmm. from the last year of the uprising? They all said what? Unity. Yes, they that all we said, need. We, we, what we've learned is we are more powerful when we're together and we're unified. Yes. And I feel like that has become, I, I almost commend those who, I do commend those actually for their, their courage, even if I disagree with them, who would say, we don't need unity, fuck that. Let's be <laughs> disunified, let's, be, let's, let's not get along. It feels like everyone, this is the thing that everybody says, mm-hmm. uh, at least most people, oh, yeah. well, unity, let's work together, come on, it's our time, you know. And particularly we're talking now about the diaspora. We're talking about mm-hmm. Iranians outside of Iran, how we can support those inside Iran, because they're the, they're the ones leading this thing, they're the ones who matter, they're the ones who will ultimately need self-determination to decide where Iran goes, not us, them, we support them. Mm-hmm. How do we support them effectively, especially in a shitty week like this? We we are unified, mm-hmm. right? Okay. But are we? So I made a video this afternoon. We put it up on Instagram. Yes. Can we make unity happen in the Iranian diaspora? Now, it's an open question mm-hmm. because you mosey over to social media <laughs> and people are yelling at each other or, you know, canceling each other or, 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 or sort of unfollowing, you know. Uh, uh, but also here in Toronto, I was waiting five days to talk about this. Mm-hmm. We had on Saturday there were there were demo, there was demonstrations planned around the world yes. to mark a global day of action mm-hmm. to show support for freedom and unity and freedom and, and democracy in Iran uh, on the anniversary of the killing of Masa Amini. Right. That's right. Saturday, this past Saturday, September sixteenth. And what did we have in Toronto? Obviously, we've got a huge Iranian uh, expat, you know, people of Iranian descent population that's grown here. We've seen so much activism. It's been so inspiring. Mm-hmm. So we knew there was going to be a big demonstration. A lot of people were involved. So what do we have? We had demonstrations. <laughs> Not just demonstration, demonstrations. Yes. More than one. Two, at least two big ones. And actually, there were more, but there were two big ones. That's right. Now, why were there two big ones, one may ask? I wish I knew. Well, you do know. I do, but this is the thing. Every time we talk about unity, it's like this double-edged sword to me because, yes, we all talk about it, but then in reality and in actuality and in action, you have a city like Toronto where these organizers, and listen, good on them for organizing it. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for these demonstrations and the rallies and people coming out, and I think it's important, super important. It's imperative for what we're trying to do. But for God's sakes, at least put it at different times. And, and, you know, why divide people? Well, they were sort of at different times. They were. Okay, but not really. But because if you were downtown, how are you, or if you were uptown, how are you going to get downtown in First time? of all, let me ask, let me answer the, uh, the hypothetical question that wasn't really a hypothetical. Why were there two or mm-hmm. more demonstrations? Because people, 
uh, of Iranian descent who want to be active about this seem to be disagreeing ideologically, politically, mm-hmm. um, tactically, uh, in terms of their, where their allegiances lie with so-called opposition leaders, etc. So they can't get along to have one big demonstration. Mm-hmm. And let me reiterate very clearly, now for anybody listening, that I am not blaming the organizers of these these rallies for organizing demonstrations. It's it's a tough thing to do. Anytime yes, anyone who's organized a demonstration, it's hard work. Nobody's getting paid. Nobody's getting patted on the back for this. They're mm-hmm. doing this stuff. They're trying to bring together people. They're trying to make a difference. And and nor do we blame the people going to these rallies and in demonstrations and trying to be active and, and all of that. But for, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. Can we, on the day, on that one year anniversary of Masoamini, when everyone is saying unity is what we need, that's what we've learned, togetherness, let's do this. We, we're fighting a, this formidable foe. We do it by coming together mm-hmm. you know, with common goal, free Iran. Can we not just have one rally, one demonstration? And the thing that triggered it for me was, and I mentioned this on that video that yeah. I made, I got a, I got a message from a, a Canadian journalist who works mm-hmm. with a TV network. You know, Here's, a cha- here's what we want. Right, yeah. we want these things to be covered by media that's non-Iranian media. We want oh, there's a demonstration for what about Iran? Oh, why? Okay, here's the information. That's good. That's you know, I mean, we know that the West isn't going to save Iran, mm-hmm. and it's up to Iranians, and we know that the media is whatever. But hey, you know, we'll take the coverage we'll where we can. Coverage, Somebody's yeah. interested in covering, has heard that there's Iranian demonstrations, um, demonstrations of people of Iranian descent and others in support uh, of the people inside Iran today in Toronto. Okay, so, and she she reaches out to me and says, hey, I heard there's two demonstrations. <laughs> Which one do I go to? Yeah. So then I am in the position, I mean, I actually did say, well, try and go to all, everything, right? Yeah. And you know, she was like, look, I'm, I'm, I don't have the time to run around time the city to go to all different yeah. demonstrations. You, What are you guys doing? What do you... So I, then I'm in the position to have to tell this journalist, this reporter, which demonstration mm-hmm. to go to when I know that there's people who, with good intentions on both of with them both, and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and just it, in that moment, I was kind of like, well, why? Why are you in that why position? Am, why, yeah. why, do I, why does this journalist have to choose? Can't we on this day? Mm-hmm. Like, we need different opinions. We need people passionately debating. We need different leaders, different whatever. Absolutely, All of yeah. that is good. But in the moment when we're trying to, you know, make a difference and mm-hmm. send a message out and talk about this regime and Rice's in New York, we have to have a, a, a 10 different demonstrations because people will get along with each other. It's so funny because I didn't know that story. Can I go back to Arsenal? No. All right. <laughs> I was feeling so much better when I was yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I didn't know that, you know, this had happened, that a reporter had reached out to yeah. and whatnot. So when, when I heard this, I was so sad because, again, it took me back to the fact that, I mean, I've had this this emotion, this same anger, if you will, about why it is that we can't seem to get it together with the unity. But when I heard that, and I don't know, maybe it's because it was, quote unquote, Western coverage or it's because mm. we want the coverage and things like that. It made me so upset to think that not only are we dealing with this internally, you know, as Iranians across the globe, we have these conversations, but it's also spreading to, you know, individuals who are trying to understand this and it's causing a sure. blockade. It, sure. it, it's, 
Not, we know we know all the issues, yeah. and we even know that some of the divisions are legitimate and and all Absolutely. that. Right? But imagine, I mean, I don't know a lot about, um, you know, uh, I I don't know intimately what's happening in China, right? Right. So I hear there's this demonstration against the the regime in China, mm-hmm. and a bunch of people of Chinese descent are going to have a, a, a day of action around the world, and then I hear there's two different demonstrations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. of Chinese people and and I, and I have to call someone and go which Chinese demonstration am I going to and they go well our community's divided we're not sure I mean what message is it? and I'm like well I, you know how do what I who do I trust what yeah. do I know what are they you know so what's the I mean it's confusing right Very. it's confusing to those certainly to those who aren't schooled in all that's going on with Iran and all the, the intricacies, the intricacies of, of the opposition that's grown over different years of different right. people and and who again legitimately some folks say hey you know this is my folks my, these people have been at it for years these guys are you know, whatever right no a lot of western folks don't know those intricacies mm-hmm. even if they're journalists who want to read up on things and everything so all they know is oh there's some murky thing going on in the iranian community where there's a bunch of people saying different things and we're not sure and they're arguing with each other and it's just not the uh, it's not helpful not at all i don't think no i agree now my, my question is legitimately if you if if you're out there and you think the fact that we're not unified like the fact that in this case, at least, mm-hmm. the fact that we we should have two or three different demonstrations that that have different ideological messages and stuff. If if you think that's a good thing, I want to hear from you. Like, tell me why why what maybe that's maybe it's positive in some people's eyes. Maybe it's maybe it's it's helpful to have different things happening in the city with different people at the same time. At the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. My my stance on this is very clear. So even even Iranian friends were confused, yes. right? Yes. A lot of Iranians were like, what, 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 "When is it? Which where am I supposed Which to one? go?" Yeah. I mean, there were so many people I talked to, and I was saying, "You know, well, I'll see you Saturday at Queens Park," and then they were like, "Queens Park? I thought it was Mel Asman." Yeah. And then someone else was like, "No, I thought it was somewhere else." I mean, even amongst ourselves, having known yeah. the history of all these intricacies, and, and I wonder confused. if they're. Again, you guys, we don't want to be so Toronto-centric because our, our Toronto audience is 10% of our show. There, right. There's people listening around the world. If you, if you guys have these same issues in Sydney, Australia, yeah. or in London, tell me, may, or in San Diego. I mean, maybe maybe this is not unique to Toronto, mm-hmm. but we have such a big community here. It's such a powerful community with such amazing people. It's it's just a shame to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I listen, it's always been this way. We always know, you go back in the Green Movement in yeah. 2009, I was on stage, you know, and I would look out and there's like the communists and the socialists and the monarchists and everybody's here. That part I'm okay with. I think that's a good thing. Of course. I just don't think, we have a bunch of different groups, yeah. but you know, everybody at that point was pretty much on the same page, yes. you know, uh, for supporting the Green Movement. Now, of course, we've traveled a, a long way since then. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone's on the same page here about wanting to get rid of the the regime in, in Iran like see, at least so. those who decide to go on these demonstrations yes. of one kind or another but so so i guess one theory would be let's all come together for now mm-hmm. and then you know negotiate the differences <laughs> after right that's yeah oh. but you know arsenal <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go back back to in the champions league I, the gunners is that what you called them the gunners okay i'll remember that well you know time. arsenal arsenal yeah. is like a a gun, gun yeah, you know yeah. arsenal of, of equipment like a right. a cannon right yes so the the nickname of the arsenal uh the gunners. team and fans have, has been the gunners yeah okay which then becomes the slang of that is the gooners 
Oh, okay. So if you're really on the inside, you're like, hey, Guna. You know, like that, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, you'll know more about Arsenal than you will I, about the I'm Iranian sure diaspora <laughs> by the end of this year. Uh, Gisu Hariri is coming up. Um, before we do that, let's. I, I was going to say a couple more things, but let's go to the Rook Roundup since we're already involved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about a bit about what's been happening this past week, and then we'll go to our feature guest, um, who I'm very much looking forward to having. She is awaiting us in New York. Um, I mentioned, uh, whoops, that was my computer, sorry. Mm-hmm. I mentioned uh, Raisi mm-hmm. being given a platform, like coming to New York, yeah, making his triumphant entrance to, to New York. Um, there's a number of things around this. Like, yeah. uh, let's, let's talk about it. I mean, I, mean, I think making, giving him a platform is such an understatement with what we've seen happen. I mean, he spoke for 36 minutes at the UN General Assembly. That's the first thing. We've talked. Is that a lot? I don't Listen, know I think three seconds right, for someone right, right. like Raisi is a lot. So to, to me, yes. Um, he's had numerous private meetings behind closed doors who we don't know with who. We just know that there were political f- political figures, analysts, reporters given all sorts of invitations. We know that there was a New York-based think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR for short, who sent out this elaborate invitation and put him on a panel and you know through the pressure of Iranians actually they ended up canceling it and then rescheduling it and there's been all sorts of controversy with that so you know to say that he's been given a platform again I think is such an understatement for an individual like him there's been so many opportunities that he's had to spread more lies and to right now and for the pre- for anyone listening, mm-hmm. maybe somebody who's a non-Iranian who's a newcomer to what we we're saying, yes. well, he's the president of Iran. Why shouldn't he be able to come to to New York and give a speech? And <laughs> the answer the is, well, because um, you know, like we've talked about for months on end, the Islamic Republic and Iran and Iranians are two completely separate things. The Islamic Republic does not stand for anything that Iranians are trying to achieve, and it's this constant battle against a theocratic regime, um, and. And by rolling out the metaphorical red carpet mm-hmm. for Raisi and, and his circle to come to New York and speak at the United Nations, you basically justify the existence of this regime and Absolutely. what they do and say, well, you know, every country has problems and um, we're, we're talking about a, a government that um, for, for most Iranians around the world, I think it's fair to say, at least mm-hmm. those outside of Iran and many inside Iran, obviously, um, has long ago crossed the line of any legitimacy in terms mm-hmm. of its um, iron-fisted uh, actions that are neither democratic um, uh, nor justified. And, and the result has been children and, and young women and, and, and many others incarcerated and tortured and killed and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the sad part for me, part of it was, you know that in the height of the, uh, I mean, so far the height of the uprising, I don't think it's it's over, it has its ebbs and flows, but you know, go back to November of last year, um, there was no way that the oh. American administration and others would allow Raisi uh, to traipse around New mm-hmm. York. It, it would have been um, a very bad um, tactical move and bad PR, no matter what your intentions are anyway. But things well, have shifted. 
and it's also the hypocrisy right Th- that's also what i have a problem with and i know we've talked about this for the last year if not longer but on one hand you have someone like biden come out and say you know we we don't agree with what iran is, what the islamic republic is doing and we condemn this and that and you know we stand against human rights violations and and all sorts of things but then you hand them a carte blanche and allow them to come into a city like new york to come to the un to give them six billion dollars and to release hostages and all these other things that we've seen so it, it's the hypocrisy more than anything else that's infuriating look it's really heartening to see some of those american hostages released mm-hmm. that those are heartening moments and images and and um you know thank god for them and their families but it was also interesting to see how many Iranian American, you know, even some media types and stuff were coming out going, oh, this is the right thing to do. You know, that $6 billion is ultimately Iranians' money. <laughs> like this kind of narrative that, again, uh, wouldn't have wouldn't have passed the muster a few months back. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. You're going to give $6 billion for these guys to use however they want, you know? Um, but now it seems like, for now, things have... Look, a lot of headway has been made. Mm-hmm. So some of this may be three steps forward, two steps back, yes. three steps forward, two steps back. It's like a little, little dance that's happening on the way to uh, the Garden of Eden. But but this is um, th- this was frustrating. It was. But can we go back to the hostage diplomacy for a second? Because I, like many things, I have a very strong opinion about this. I Not new. Yeah. The idea of Not we take hostage and then... We have demands, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, and this is done, you know, internationally. And, yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. If I if I put myself in the position of those families for even one second, maybe all of these arguments that I'm about to make would go out the window. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand that. But mm-hmm. putting the emotional aspect of it aside and looking at it as exactly that, a method of diplomacy, I don't agree with it at all because I think it just incentivizes hostage taking, especially when you're dealing with a regime like the Islamic Republic. I mean, look at this. They've taken more than five, but the five that have been released, let's talk about them. They've taken them knowing that the United States is going to cave and give them six billion dollars. Look at the timing of this. I mean, you can't tell me that the two are not connected. I don't think anyone would be able to say that. And to allow for this to continue to happen, I think it's just... The timing of what? Sorry. The timing of the hostage release, the money being sent over, it, it's directly Well, connected. it's the same deal. Yeah, of it's course. part yeah, of the same yeah, deal, yeah, but yeah. but it's incentive. That's exactly what it is, is that the yeah. Islamic Republic knows that so they why can do, why do, What's the incentive for the Islamic Republic to not jail a few more exactly. people and then ask for $6 billion? That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it only leads to temporary concessions or temporary goodwill. It doesn't actually solve the problems long term. And we, we've seen it. I mean, history has shown us that that's mm. the case, and yet we continue to negotiate with these terrorists. That's exactly what it is. Did you see that Raisi also, uh, he's done an interview with Fred Zakaria? Yes. I mean, I saw a portion of it. I don't I think I don't, it's aired yet. Yeah. I saw a portion, too. I, th- I think it's going to be on the week. I, I like Fred Zakaria, actually. I do, too. Generally, I think he's a very fair and very sharp guy. And, but the but, answers, uh, oh, my God. God. From what I, from what you can tell, yeah, it's 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 like um, these guys again. It reminds me of uh, the foreign minister, master they, of deflection. Well, is what they it they is. talk like I mean, they really do talk like cartoon villains. <laughs> like you can't believe the guys. Like he goes, are these for humanitarian cause reasons? Are you going to spend the six billion on humanitarian? Everything we do is humanitarian <laughs> with and an my, evil uh, laugh, my friend. Ah, yeah, exactly. 
he was not speaking English, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very. Um, yeah, he said. He said, "What did he say?" Uh, there was. Um, he said it was going to be spent towards the needs of Iranians. Were his exact words. And as soon as I heard that, I was thinking, I was like, "What part of the needs of Iranians have you actually fulfilled mm. in the last forty some odd years for this to be, you know, another?" But I'm, I'm excited to see that interview. Actually, I think the questions that that he asks will be. Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I mean, I, uh, you know, how I generally feel about getting a platform to these guys. But I. Well, I mean, I now that it, it's happening, yeah. yeah well, at this point, it. I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I want to yeah. see the questions. Yeah. And then, and then, while they're in New York, there's this thing. Just over the last twenty four hours, I've been seeing. Um, did you see the? There's a Iran international. I mean, Iran international of all the networks tends to be maybe they have the most resources but they tend to be the more aggressive about trying to question these people i mean to their credit i mean they're they're on the scene and they're mm -hmm. trying to and there's there was one reporter did you see this whole I did, the video it was impossible to look away i mean yeah. there was the it was there was a re regime thug or you know security guy or whatever mm -hmm. he was this is in new york coming and you know trying to tell the the iran international guy well, the journalist, the Iran international journalist, is standing on the sidewalk outside of a hotel in New York City. I mean, if that's not public yeah. domain, I don't know what he's it is. He's not in Qom. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he's standing there, he's filming, as it's his right to, and one of these goons, as we call them, um, sees him filming, and he walks over all huff and puff, and tries to push the camera out of his hand, and then an altercation starts. And the, the thing is that there's all these security I guess security guards or security service or whatever you want to call them for kind of both sides, if you will. And they're just baffled because they don't know what to do because yeah. this is so outrageous to yeah. think that you could yeah, you can kind do of see like, that. like the American, like the New York police or whatever, kind of going, what's happening here? Yeah. Are we it's like, just, how do I intervene? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But that's not the only report of that happening, actually. I, I saw something else on Persian Twitter, my favorite source, or yes, X now, whatever it's called. Right, right. Um, Is it X in Persian too? I don't know. I guess it must be, right? Yeah, it must be. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there was a reporter or a couple of reporters from VOA who actually found the hotel that, I mean, like everyone else has found it, but they went to the hotel, they found the floor that a meeting was taking oh, place. Oh yeah, I saw this. The, yeah. It falls the guy into the elevator and into stuff? Into the elevator yeah. and it's like, it's just... But that wasn't... That wasn't this confrontational. No, the guy they, just they, didn't say anything. No, no, no. There, there's two incidents. Oh. So one is that the following is after an altercation that oh. took place. So there were two or three reporters, something like that. And again, an individual comes up and tries to take the camera this time, not yeah. only just hit it out uh. of the person's hand. But again, the security... I always find that it's so telling, right? It's like the entitlement. Mm -hmm. It's like you know that they... like. I mean... It's one thing to ignore the questions or pretend you're not, yeah. don't look at the guy or, you know, give an evil smile and walk away mm -hmm. or whatever it is, you know. That's kind of what the most politicians from around the world would do. Right. But the idea that there's a guy we got to go rough up because mm -hmm. he's asking questions with a microphone. I mean, it's so. Well, it's just you know, disregard for the laws of the the place that you're in. But like, it suggests that we, we don't. Yeah, we don't agree with those laws. We don't. E we don't even. We're no, not used it, to them. I mean, it's, it's not a, even that they don't agree. I think they just think of themselves as above it. Yes, that's what it is. Or omnip omnipotent. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <gasps> I mentioned the this new hijab law. Mm -hmm. uh, is that is this passed now? Yeah. So uh. it um, Parliament approved the new bill. On September 20th, um, it was passed with some sort of ridiculous number, like 152 um, members. September in favor. 20th was yesterday. 
Yes, yesterday. Okay. Officially, it passed okay. yesterday. Um, 152 uh, members of parliament in favor, 34 against. So the wonderful 34 people who voted against it. Mm. I don't know who they are. Um, and it's to be applied for a two-year trial period. Now, this is still pending, of course, um, the Guardian Council's approval. So it passed in Parliament, but it has to go to the Iran, the Iranian Guardian Council, which, of course, it'll be passed at. Um, it's going to be put to a trial test period of two years. Uh, the way it's going to, the bill calls for a maximum imprisonment of 10 years for anyone who defies the hijab laws. Um, and I guess the fine print of that is that you have to have had more than four violations in order to be imprisoned for the 10 years. So there's some sort of leeway, I guess, count yeah. or leeway or something, if you will. But it also specifies that women who wear revealing or tight clothing or show a part of their body lower than the neck or higher than the ankles or higher than the forearms mm, will face tougher punishments. So one of the things that we have been that folks have been taking some heart with is that you know the ground has shifted the goalposts have moved however mm -hmm. you want to put it that over the last year especially maybe a bit before that but over the last year um we've seen all kinds of brave women in iran young women not wearing hijabs mm -hmm. you know we hear this constantly we have friends that are there yeah. who say i go out and i never wear the uh, the rusari i don't i don't mm -hmm. cover myself um is this really going to be a rollback, do you think, of all of that? Well, I mean, we've already started to see it. I think, um, you know, leading up to the anniversary of um, Massa's killing, uh, or her murder, rather, um, we had seen that there was a crackdown. We had seen that, you know, in numerous places like shopping malls, um, streets, you know, all sorts of places where we had friends or we had seen videos of individuals not wearing the hijab, there was such a heavy presence of police or security forces or whatever you want to call it that it wouldn't even allow for that to happen anymore and so i definitely think that with the passing of this new bill with the presence of security forces more and more i do think it'll be a rollback for sure uh final question was i thought we'd be remiss if we don't mention ronaldo <sighs> back to football uh if it's not arsenal it's so <sighs> so cristiano ronaldo uh who plays now in the arab league mm -hmm. of course famously now uh, landed in Iran this week for a um, couple of days of high profile um, activity. What did you make of that? I, mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. In the grand scheme of things with everything else that's happened in and around Iran and the Islamic Republic and Raisi and everything else we've just talked about, I think it's on the lowest level of my concerns. But I mean, anything that has to do with the Islamic Republic, there's nothing but bad news with it. I, I read something about, um, there's an Iranian um, pa famous painter, I think she's an artist, mm -hmm. um, who had drawn a portrait or a painting or something, and she somehow got a chance to meet with Ronaldo, and then he signed a jersey and gave it to her. And now her brother is saying that after leaving wherever this was, they've taken the jersey from her. Mm. I mean, there, there's nothing. We nothing don't know good. that. I mean, don't, I don't yeah, know, yeah, but th yeah. this is what's reported. And then, yeah. of course, we saw the the mass of people who were rushing the hotel. And there were some people who were saying them. that the timing was conspicuous. That you're naive to think that uh, this isn't planned to deflect from attention mm -hmm. of uh, the mass Amini uh, anniversary and Raisi in New York and the the crackdowns and all of that. Uh, that's. That's not entirely easy for me to believe because there is a, you know, 
these things, these the, the leagues plan this, and this is mm-hmm. well planned in advance. And the one thing I'll say is, listen, I I adore the the passion for football that Iranians and those young Iranian boys have, but those scenes, yeah. I don't, you know, it. <laughs> It just looked like a bunch of people running after a bus and the climbing the side of the ju- mountain to get you know, to the hotel. It just looked so, uh, you know, I don't even know how to say it. It didn't. It it it, it didn't look. Uh, it, it didn't. It wasn't a good look. No, it wasn't I agree. a good look for for you know this this country of sophisticated wonderful you mm-hmm. know people living in a modern I don't know I, I, I was like where, where is this yeah first of all I couldn't believe and it that was that Tehran was not, yeah that's yeah, the yeah, thing I yeah. couldn't believe it seeing the images I was like this has got to be somewhere and then else and, and 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 then they like ransacked the hotel yeah. and and part of it is you know you, you I don't want to only ever blame the the government of Iran as much as we we, we know how we feel because mm-hmm. there's soccer hooligans in England, England and you yeah. can't blame that all on the government of England or whatever. But but there was no seemingly no contingency mm-hmm. for this. Like you're clearly trading on the idea of this famous football star coming to Iran if you're the regime. Mm-hmm. So why not like plan for it somehow? Allow an area where people can gather or, you know, not have to like run after a bus and break down a, you know, I mean, again, and there was no, by the way, when they played the game, there was nobody in the the stands, right? And I'm presuming this is because the the government doesn't want anybody, doesn't want crowds to gather for any reason, right? So the whole thing is just badly managed. I mean, there's some great photo ops and Ronaldo himself I've never been a fan. I'm Team Messi over the Messi Ronaldo, <laughs> the ongoing debate. But, but I think this guy, I mean, he's just he's just a football player at the end of the day who right. happens to be very handsome and extremely rich at this point and very talented. But I actually admire the way he handles himself in situations like this. Like what a what a minefield for him to have to come into and smile and pat everybody on the head and say thank you Iranian people when, when can I get out of here you know I mean it's uh, you know he seemed to handle himself elegantly you know mm-hmm. but yeah it was a it was a weird episode in the middle of everything else going exactly. on exactly yeah I mean the images I just can't, I can't get those images out of my head the first thing I thought was this can't be Iran this can't be Tehran for sure but it was weird it was it very was, strange yeah I mean the other thing is you know we we've seen mass demonstrations and people coming on onto the streets obviously over the course of the last year even inside iran Mm. and the crackdown the security forces and things like that i mean if you can do that you can't get your shit together to have Mm. some sort of something in place to have all these with all this i mean if bakayo saka comes to toronto i don't know who that is he's a place for arsenal He's the one of our. He's our star boy. Uh-huh. He comes to Toronto and and there's a bus going. Down. I might run after the bus <laughs> and try to mount the bus and you know, <laughs> break break into the hotel if or you whatever. Ever see so, running after a bus, just know <laughs> the Arsenal bus. Uh, thank you, Peg. I'm I'm excited to get uh, Gisi Hadi on. You. So uh, this is, I think we've we've said enough, uh, and we look forward to um, sharing some more positive news next week. Yes, hopefully. Um, because it isn't all negative. Uh, but um, thanks. Thanks for all of that. Thank you. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. You know, if, you are, if you're a regular listener to what we do here, we love the idea of you sharing our content. 
you know that really helps us mm-hmm. so you send send this show to somebody or or post it or tell people about it or that's that's kind of how we don't really market or uh, you know have a marketing budget for rook or anything we just it's always been word of mouth we've done these 16 million streams just just from people telling them each other about it so uh, we'd love you to do that share what you are hearing on this program it helps us uh, if you like to see visuals with rook we've got our youtube channel if you like your descriptions in english and and in persian check us out on telegram uh hi roham uh, the savvy roham he he translates things into persian and posts them there uh and if you directly want to support us by not just by uh subscribing and and sharing our content you can actually become a rook member on patreon for a few bucks a month we really appreciate that you go over to our website rookmedia.com r-o-q-e media.com and uh press the support us button it takes you to the patreon page and you can figure out how to um, support us for a few bucks a month. Buy us a coffee each month, and uh, it helps us stay alive. Thank you to you guys out there who are Rook members and support what we do. All right, let's get to our featured guest. Why don't we? My featured guest today is a distinguished Iranian American architect and one of the co founders of the renowned New York based architecture firm Hadidi and Hadidi Gisu Hadidi was born and raised in a small city in Khuzestan. She, along with her sister Mojgan, relocated to the USA to further their education and, and then established their architecture firm in 1986. Renowned for their innovative and avant-garde designs, they've left a significant mark on the world of architecture and design and have been involved in various high-profile projects around the world, including residential homes, art galleries, commercial spaces, for which they have won numerous awards. And their work has been exhibited at the MoMA in New York, the National Building Museum, and the Barcelona Museum of Contemporary Art, among other institutions. And right now, Gisu Hadidi joins me from New York City today. Hello. Hello, Jean. So good to see you and meet you um, on Zoom, uh, virtually. And thank you for inviting me to be part of your program. It's a great honor and pleasure to have you. You're not easy to get, you know, you're in, you're in a lot of demand, which I understand with your buildings around the world and your profile. So we're honored to have you on the program. Finally, thank you. Thank you. Let me start with the basics because I know that you're quite well known in the Iranian community around the world. But for those who don't necessarily know you and perhaps some non-Iranians listening as well, you're success and your story seems to be a study in contrasts and juxtapositions. And let me start with where you started. You're a kid from Khuzestan. I think I've told you my my dad is from Khuzestan, and so I still have a lot of family there. It's close to my heart. You and your sister literally grew up in the desert in the southwest of Iran. This provokes an immediate and fascinating juxtaposition. How, how do girls growing up in the desert in Iran Imagine being architects, let alone pioneers as modern designers that have now become world-renowned. One would, on the face of it, assume you were a couple of well-to-do kids from Tehran who had famous architect parents or something. That was not the case. Explore that juxtaposition, please. Well, this is the journey of my life. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, I grew up in the desert. And we lived in southern parts of Iran due to the fact that my father was an engineer in the Iranian oil company. And we had to basically be near the oil fields 
So it was a fascinating, I think, um, and very unusual upbringing. Hmm. As you know, that part of the world is very hot and dry and pretty much covered by the desert. So it was fascinating because this environment, this desert actually was isolating at the same time nurturing. The isolation, I think, provided an environment for us, for me and my sister, who were, who are a year and a half apart, and we're growing up together, um, in a way to develop our imagination. Mm. We have to create our own games, our own um, toys, our own imaginary friends, and really our own world. Um, there were no major towns around us, as you know, you're familiar with the area. At the time that I was growing up, even in like Ahwaz or Abadan, uh, or more, you know, kind of um, urban uh, towns and cities, they really, I think, were no art galleries, no museums, no cultural centers that I knew of where like perhaps my parents could take us right. you know, to become familiar with that kind of art and culture. And so um, it was a very unusual, I think, upbringing for an Iranian woman to begin with, hmm. or girls. Um, our friends, you know, were not other necessarily children or playmates that were women, but were lizards and, you know, <laughs> um, grasshoppers and um, the, you know, <laughs> garden snakes. And so we were absorbed by nature because we wanted to find friends and find out what kind of species live in this area because of its nature. And so I think that gives you a curiosity about the world, about life in general. And as children, we were exploring it and it was becoming part of us without us knowing it. So in that sense, I think there was a lot of learning and imagination that we did together. I love the imagination part and the curiosity right. that comes from, for lack of a better term, the, the blank canvas, if you would say, artistically of the desert. But the right. counterintuitive part, I mean, that, that might explain why you would be inventive or industrious or curious about nature. But the counterintuitive part is on some level, it feels like your story or, or even what you're saying suggests that where you've come to the journey of, of being these world renowned architects, these designers, that rather than growing up in Hong Kong or Berlin or New York, surrounded by designs and buildings and skyscrapers, etc., that right. somehow it was an advantage to be in the desert in the southwest of Iran. How do we make sense of that? I mean, <laughs> I think it's absolutely true. If we had grown in an environment that perhaps we were, our imagination or pure instinct would be diluted by all the noise and all the other things that were around us, perhaps we wouldn't be here because environment became a major, major, I think, part of our architecture. We started the whole kind of approach to sustainability mm. 
and respect for nature in our work because of where we come from, because we understood how the climate and environment impacts your life, your living, and what it requires to survive. It's almost becomes survival architecture, if you will. And for that reason, I, I truly believe where we grew up in the desert did become part of um, later on what we developed into architecture. And for us, it was fascinating to see how all of a sudden our professors and our colleagues hmm. We're talking about sustainability and environment while we, it was within us all the time. Like we knew you need cross ventilation. We knew that you need to respect nature because, because of just even being Iranian. Iranians have, you know, the Zoroastrians in a way worshiped the elements of nature. Water was sacred, so always, you know, it was protected. You would go down and create these, you know, underground water storages that then you would use for cooling. I mean, all of us grew up in some traditional homes or our grandparents have lived in them where you would go in a basement level and you didn't need air conditioning. It was already cool because of the use of uh, ventilation and um, use of water. Uh, And again, the wind is now well known how the Yaz and some parts of Iran they actually, they call them wind catchers, created architecture that went and scooped and collected the, the wind and brought it into architecture. So, I mean, this is how we grew up. So for me, it was very strange. And, you know, then, you know, fire, the element of fire and warmth and using fire to make clay brick. That's how we we constructed our architecture with brick, with the earth of the place we came from. It never came from somewhere else. Can I just say as a sidebar that right. it's so gratifying or interesting to hear someone talk about, you know, we, we what you were describing as the cooling system, for example, even the right. yachjal. I mean, these are things that were invented in Iran you know, hundreds and hundreds of, in some cases, thousands of years. Right. And, and sometimes there's a bit, I mean, people who listen to this program would know that I've gone on about this. Sometimes I feel like it's almost intellectually or, or somehow dishonest for us to, you know, we go, we're great because 2000 years ago, something was invented. And I think, well, what's, what's the relationship between who we are as Iranians today and something that happened 2000 years ago. And yet, you know, this is such an interesting moment. You're talking about the through line that this woman and her sister who are now in New York designing things around the world, you're connecting that back to Iranian history of 2000 years ago in such a beautiful way. Um, and that's the answer. That's the answer to the relevance of our history, right? That's very, very true. And I truly believe we are at the moment in the world where in our humanity because of the disasters we have with climate change with all the you know disastrous hurricanes and problems that we human beings have caused for ourselves and for our planet that we need to revisit these ancient cultures Hmm. and relearn from them see i think the the issues are ancient and we will rediscover that the disasters that we are facing today needs to be answered by perhaps not looking so much into the future 
and going to the moon and relying so much on technology. Technology should be used in an answer that we have already found in the ancient cultures. It's fascinating. And that's why for me that is very, very special. I want to come back to the sustainability because it's a big part of what what you guys have done, especially in recent years. But let just take me back still to the, the two girls in the, in the desert, uh, in, in Khuzestan. Uh, what, what was the, was there a light bulb moment? I mean, I mean, I know that at summers you would visit your grandparents in Esfahan, which of course is known for its design, splendor, uh, world renown. Uh, but w- was that the point? I mean, where's the point where you look at Mujgan and you guys go, we should start designing these things or we, we could, this is something we could do as opposed to, uh, any other job or profession, especially as girls who, you know, don't have a lot of, wouldn't at that time have a lot of role models to follow in in the footsteps of. That's right. Well, um, to be honest, there was no light bulb moment. It was incremental. And I always still say the way I practice architecture, we practice architecture is a dialogue and this play that we created from our childhood and is continuing on. Uh, we are constantly in talk of how can we make things better? How can we create things that are more interesting? What are the problems that we are facing that need to be addressed and no one else is addressing, for example, like homelessness? So as we are growing up and as we are evolving, we are also you know, seeing or confronting um, other issues and um, I would say problems that we need to face. And just like before, we sit down and start talking about it and discussing it. And wouldn't that be nice if we come up with some idea or a project and try to resolve that? But also, I think what is interesting to me is growing up in the desert also was inspiring artistically. As you mentioned, it is like a blank canvas. Mm. To grow up in a place that is so pure, so infinite, so Mm. it's like almost living in poetry. And that aspect of it has affected our architecture. Uh, I mean, I didn't come here and say, no, I want to be, you know, I want to bring the desert to the United States. I came here because, or to answer your question, I became interested to study architecture because Iran was developing rapidly at mm. our time. Seventies, uh, the high school, right? And so the discussions always around, as they would say, the kitchen table was, what does the country need? Engineers, architects, you know, there were all kinds of programs to build all this stuff, right? And so it goes into your head and you're like, oh, okay, I want to come and help my country and rebuild my country or contribute to the development. And so I obviously, being the older sister, told my parents, I think I want to be an architect. And my father said, what do you know about architecture? (laughs) And then with a little pause, how about interior design? I said, I don't want to design the interior. I want to build the town. And he said, well, let's start first with one building and then we go into developing towns. Um, And so having families and parents that are also supportive Mm. of your idea, especially again, your girl or a woman in Iran, um, definitely helps. And that support did come from my family 
that say, you know, they thought, sure, why not? You can do anything you want to do. What's the magic with your sister? I mean, you are famously such a team. You're not twins. I mean, we hear about these twins who, but I mean, we all, a lot of people love our families. I, I love my sister and, but I don't, certainly in my sister and I's uh, case, I couldn't imagine us inseparably um, being together and building a, a business together without uh, getting into fights or something like that, you know. Um, but siblings siblings can be mean to each other. How, how, what is the magic of you two and how you've had this journey together that seems so sustaining? Yes, as you noted, we are not twins. I am a year and a half, year and a half older than her. But ever since that I understood who I was and, and my existence. I've always had this sister next to me and with me. And so we've shared, you know, everything together. And uh, we are, as you mentioned, sometimes extremely mean to one another. <laughs> but at the same time, we realized very early on that each one of us is definitely very skilled and extremely good in designing architecture for the projects we want to do. But together, we equal not two, but equal 100. Hmm. I mean, our powers together is truly magical. And I think the reason for it is that we trust one another. We know that if we push each other and push our boundaries, in terms of stamina, in terms of design, in terms of skills, is not a criticism of one being less than the other, but it's because together we want to really, really have an impact mm. in this world. Do you each have roles? I mean, is it is it like uh, um, one person writes the the lyrics and the other the the music? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you, you know, or do you know what you're each bringing to each project? Well, we definitely have our uh, weaknesses and our strengths, and we try to maximize the strengths that we have and, uh, you know, help each other in the areas that uh, we each need a bit more development. But no, we don't have a specific role, except now that obviously the projects are larger. We cannot both do exactly the same thing all the time. So, um, Mojgan by nature is much more um, focused on details and execution of projects. It truly bothers her if there is one corner of a <laughs> million dollar project is that no one sees is not perfect. So And it doesn't bother you? It doesn't bother me because I think life is not perfect. Hmm. And I have learned to, in fact, enjoy the imperfectness of life and learn from it. And next time around, do not allow it to happen. But it bothers her a lot. So we allow her to worry about them. <laughs> and, uh, and for that reason, I think we have a very, very uh, good team. But, you know, design and uh, the concept of the project, we definitely work together for it to, to happen. You, you know, one of the things I try to remind myself to do uh, with this 
program is to not minimize the emotional um, experience of immigration. It's the it's actually a really big deal to move from one part of the world to an entirely different part of the world. And I think it explains a lot of the dysfunction of the Iranian community around the world, as most of us have, have done this migration within the last 40 years, um, post-1979, some slightly before that. Um, but it's also a bigger deal to immigrate from one place, from Iran to some some other place in the world in an era before um, social media and and uh, Facebook and Twitter and getting on uh, line and, and seeing your friends uh, back home as soon as you get to a new country. So you arrive in America in the 1970s, two Iranian girls studying at Cornell. I can't imagine there were a lot of other female students in architecture. In fact, you've said that there were no female professors in your field at the time at Cornell. Uh, right. Tell me about being Iranian women and new to America in the 70s at Cornell and that experience for you. <laughs> um, well, it was very exciting and also challenging, as you mentioned, to um, to be a woman in an architecture program, let alone at one of the best. Uh, you know, the Cornell undergraduate program was very well known. In fact, very difficult to even get in. But our passion for architecture, you know, and we came one after another. So I arrived and started to to learn my way around. And uh, I never thought I was going to be afraid because there was a purpose. There was this idea that we would learn everything that the best university in the world has to offer to take it back again with us to Iran to rebuild our country. But, you know, the disappointment was that in high school and actually in elementary school, we went to schools that were single sex schools. They were all for girls and we were always surrounded by women and uh, other children that were the same gender. And so my hope was that in this new world, you actually would experience more of an equality and more of a intermix of the genders. And so the disappointment for me was to arrive at a school that were token number of girls and not only that, to see that the boys, I call them, the, my colleagues, my other students of architecture, in fact, didn't have any interest mm. to even intermingle with you, <laughs> to bring you in, to accept you. And uh, so I first thought that was just the schools of architecture and the era that I was in. But, you know, later on in life, I realized this is going to be permanent in our mm. professional life. The world of architecture has always been for hundreds of years, the world of men in construction, they're all run or not these days. Now we have other women who are developers and contractors and builders, but again, very few. So when you are in this kind of environment, you feel that you really need extra protection and you need extra help. And so for me, that has been one of the few disappointments of not finding that equal weight in this country, which was something I was seeking for, because in our country, this segregation and this yeah. kind of, as they call gender apartheid was so pronounced. And I was, as a teenager, growing within that kind of culture.
I was going to ask you about this later, but I mean, since we're at it right now, I mean, one would expect or hope that things have dramatically changed now. Do you do you still feel like there are instances even now with all of your success and, and fame where you are underestimated, where you and your sister are not given the same sort of um, expectation of, of, um, of, of being the best at what you do that, that a man would? Well, things definitely have improved because now, you know, as you know it and the world knows it, um, more than 80%, more, more than 50, 60% of each university, you know, architecture student is uh, occupied by women. Uh, we definitely have all the major architecture schools have deans that are women. So there is much more attention and understanding that perhaps the needs and the way we educate architects should, should at least have different voices that could be taught and learned from. So in that sense, it's a definitely a very large, I would say, change. But, uh, you know, after 40 years of having a practice, and as you mentioned, you know, kind of slowly, but step by step, getting awards, in participating, let's say, in discussions, in teaching, in actually, um, I don't know, having four or five books of architecture out that is a collection of our work, our yes. ideas, our thoughts. You would imagine by now, you know, you would be on the list of the high, you know, yes. Nobel prizes and um, recognitions that the world architects, you know, um, in a way uh, should get. And I don't think that will happen because if you look at the Pritzker Prize, which is the Nobel Prize for architecture, perhaps there are two or three very recently women have won that prize. I was talking to a, a very trusted and important architect who was the director of MoMA at one point in time. And, you know, he said to me, you have to realize those kinds of awards and those kinds of architecture projects, the museums, you know, the main projects that the world begins to see and experience are all political. They don't come to you because you are a very good architect. There are many good architects around. And so I think that was an eye-opening moment for me. If, if it's all about politics, honestly, perhaps it's okay for us not to uh, win those kinds of projects, but is we still do not have enough substantial public projects mm. that are excellent and are done by women architects. Yeah, I, I, I recall interviewing, it's gotta be um, probably 18, 20 years ago now, um, Daniel Liebskin, and we titled the the interview, we were talking about the new era of star architects, you know, how architects were the new rock stars. But all of the examples were were men at the time, and which clearly is not the, not the available pool. It would, would there, be a, there should be a, a lot of um, female stars in there too. So uh, obviously what you say uh, makes sense and, and needs to, we need to keep developing in this era, in, 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 in this area. I think back to when you first established your company then in the mid 80s, you and your sister, 
uh, it must have been on some level kind of audacious, these two Iranian women uh, starting an architecture firm in New York City, and here we go, you know? Uh, uh, tell me about that. Did it feel like a bold move, or was it just natural for you two? It was definitely very natural for us. And I tell you the story. We realized within a year or two of the school that our colleagues always, along, I think, the projects that you know we were doing uh, academically and for the school, they would gather together a group of them, the celebrated you know co colleagues I call them, and had this kind of a boys club where you know the selected few would get to come together and um, participate in. I would say, um, architectural competitions. And the idea was that hopefully they will win one of these or, you know, competitions for a very large project. And then, you know, they were already famous and they would already have their project even while they were in school. And so we always kind of, you know, yeah, we were never invited. We were never part of it. And so we got fed up with it. And I told my sister, well, we can have our own club. We can do our own competitions. <laughs> nice. So we started doing also competitions together. We had few colleagues who came and helped because, you know, it required double amount of work nighttime doing competitions and daytime, you know, going to classes. And um, honestly, the few projects that we did together with some of our friends turned out to be really good. So from that time, we knew that we are going to have our own office. Hmm. We knew that together we work really well. I mean, there are they were like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, um, where you know we are working together and complaining and you know all of that or telling stories. You know, I'm falling asleep, and the other my sister would come and say, "Don't fall asleep. One day, this is gonna be our story." So I would wake up, go make coffee. Then she would say, "Well, I think this is good enough," and I would say, "No," because. One day it's going to win and be one of those architects who were winners as students in their school. So we kept each other company and encouraged. And always the goal was to create this project that was so far and beyond and great that, you know, others will recognize that, you know, our passion for architecture was not just even for the price, or, but for the project. You know, I didn't want to... I... I, I left the conversation of you being at Cornell before um, asking you about something, which is that you said you seem to be implying that the expectation at the time you guys went to Cornell in the 70s was that you were going to return to Iran. Um, you obviously end up uh, at some point deciding to stay in the in the U.S. as you've now been New York based for many years. Was that the Islamic Revolution of 79? I mean, it, what what happened that you decide to stay in America? Yes, I was actually doing my thesis at the time. And um, then there was a revolution. And um, so on one hand, we had the radio at that time. You know, there wasn't all this social media broadcasting and right. computers. And we are, I was inking my, my thesis uh, drawings. And, you know, it, it was becoming obvious. And finally, there is a revolution. So... The thing is, we were already here in school. And so, honestly, it was very, very um, difficult time. And 
scary time, I would say, because we did have United States government sent to see whose visas are yeah. finishing, like what is going on with this Iranian students. And so we were told that the, the visas that are finishing and we are students who are completing our projects is not going to be renewed because of the Islamic revolution. And so the decision was which route to go, whether to even try to continue yeah. our education, which was you know, at the time, because there was restrictions of sending funds and money, and how do you live when your parents are all over the place? And so it was not so easy. It wasn't like all of a sudden there was a hurricane that came and demolished everything. And most importantly, your purpose of studying architecture to go and help rebuild your country. Yeah. No one stopped us from going back and we still would like to one day go back. But what happened is we were allowed to have, I think, a year or two years of internship and work uh, visa. And that's what we decided to do and apply for and therefore started working for American architectural companies. And so that was learning now to become professional and how offices run and so on. Gave us a little buffer zone to to look and see and analyze what has become of our country and whether it would be appropriate for us now to go back or not. Yeah, the country is in a very transitional zone and perhaps it would be wise to stay longer in where we are and complete and become a little bit more fluent in all the technologies that were now rapidly, you know, no one was drawing with hand anymore yeah. with computers and the newer technologies. And so that was the reason that um, I have told my children, my two daughters, that I don't feel or believe in my soul that I ever migrated or immigrated mm. to United States. Mm. I was already here and I was in a way paying dues. I was doing paying taxes. I was working, um, you know, for um, different uh, offices. And um, then I decided that, you know, I welcome this extension of stay. And I always feel I'm a guest here. Mm. I'm a guest of United States. They have been fantastic hosts. They have protected us. They have given us opportunities to create many things and to make a home here. But, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> it's interesting because that, at that at that time, um, you're in a catch-22 because obviously there's the challenges of going back to Iran, which is now in, as you called it, the transition. The transition has left, has it's 44 years, we're still in the transition apparently, but you know, this, um, with this Islamic uh, uh, government and, and regime, but, but so the, there's the difficulty of going back, but staying um, involves some difficulty too, because you know, in the, in the early 1980s, it wasn't necessarily easy to be Iranian in America, especially after the, the hostage crisis. Um, did you face discrimination in, in, in those times? Was it, was it particularly difficult in terms of being Iranian or were you somehow, you know, kept from that being in a big city like New York? 
I think um, being in New York City helps because there are so many truly different cultures that coexist with one another. So you didn't feel like, you know, it, it wasn't in Midwest or it wasn't in Southern part of the United States where perhaps uh, being a foreigner is much more pronounced. Mm -hmm. Here, everyone is from somewhere. And for that reason, I think we chose New York. It's a small island that we live in. It's almost like a bubble in the United States of um, creative people and the center of arts and commerce and Wall Street and so on. So in that sense, no, I would say we didn't feel discrimination, but I would say it was very, very difficult time after the hostage taking, because it wasn't just there was a revolution. Then there was also this backlash that if you are Iranian, you are a terrorist. Yeah. You know, most people tear totter insane they are Iranians and who they are. But uh, I never shied away. And I, as I am saying, even today, I, after 44 years here, um, I love where I am. I love Americans and I love uh, my clients and people who have trusted us and have worked with us and have given us an opportunity. But I'm not an American. Mm. I am definitely an Iranian in soul and in DNA, and I'm very proud of it. Isn't that interesting? Because you've, you've now lived more of your life outside of Iran than inside right. Iran. Yes. You know, I think where you're born and mm where you develop and your childhood is the foundation of who you become later on. So to kind of cut that and put it aside and become or, you know, mix with something else um, was very difficult for me and has never happened. Gisa, a few moments ago, you talked about the the political nature of those that get awards in in the field of architecture, and I, and I know that there, there's a there's politics involved in terms of who even gets the gigs, who gets awarded the projects. Sometimes, obviously, right. uh, be naive to think otherwise. But right. you've said that all architecture is political, which is quite a provocative statement. What what does it mean? Well, architecture. What is architecture? Architecture is. It's a contract between architects and people of a place. In a way, have a relationship with their authorities and with people who make change in their environment and in their living. Mm. So they are the decision makers. And therefore, architecture by nature becomes political. It's not who I decide how people have to live. People have to you know, in a way decide or the government puts the regulations in place of what is to become of architecture. And um, as architects, even here on a daily basis, we are confronting authorities who are set in their position and frame of mind with codes, with regulations, mm -hmm. with while you see how fast our technologies are going forward, you cannot keep the same thoughts and ideas and vision about cities without understanding that we need to make change. So in that sense, there is always, I don't want to say a conflict, but there is always this um, dialogue and confrontation that uh, you know happens. And architects are re responsible 
to people because we build their environments. And so in that sense, you know, talking before we were saying that there is a there's a social responsibility. We are responsible of how safe our structures are, how those structures that are safe make the environment we live in safe. It's a very... <laughs> That's such an interesting explanation because, again, well, on the face of it, I would think okay a building is a build it's like a thing it's a it's an inert it's a it's a it's a material structure it's like a table what how could it be political um but but you're so obviously you're so right in the sense that uh how you build a building where you build a building what what's the nature of the building all of that is necessarily interacting with the community around it and 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 therefore political now when you mention social responsibility this is very interesting to me because i've seen you talk about this and i and i know you you talk about sustainability etc and i when i started the interview saying you're at the juxtapositions i wanted to get to this as well because the nature of at least some of what you do seems to be very for a very select global elite i mean you build these fantastic amazing incredible buildings uh that obviously serve work with in some ways preserve i suppose the top one percent um but i also know that your your heart is in wanting to give back and pay forward and and sustainability etc so tell me about dealing with trying to make what you do and those for whom you do it accessible or in line with your democratic tendencies um architecture has this juxtaposition or this contrasting sides to it. On one hand, you are, um, as an architect, educated to accept the responsibility towards a community, towards different cultures, towards the world at large. But at the other hand, architecture has become and has always been commerce so hmm. it's about construction and sale and uh, i mean how many times have we seen a luxury building and luxury condominiums being built um which is for that unfortunately one percent so we know this and we have realized this um I have always tried in my office to have a balance between the two. Um, there is no reason um, not to create um, a great world of architecture for someone who has the passion to create art, to give away something because they, they can fund that kind of a project. So they are part of the elite wealthy 1%. But on the other hand, I think one needs to give the same amount of beauty and um, passion and creativity to those who don't have the funds and who need it the most, mm -hmm. because they are the ones, they are the souls and spirits that need to be elevated, not the ones that have everything and have seen everything. So we have, we have always tried to have a balance in that sense that we, within our own office, while we have active projects on the construction, 
also do research, also do theoretical projects, also do, you know, question, like how, how can we help and then come up with right. an answer. So um, that has been an ongoing, in a way, attitude or philosophy and for us. Do they butt heads the imperative for com commerce versus the imperative to, to do something socially responsible? Are they at odds with each other all the time? I would say they are not at odds with each other at all. It's just no one wants to do it. There is, it, it takes time, it takes money, it takes resources. And you know, why would you want to do that? The governments are not interested. I mean, look at the state of housing in around the world. We have 150 million people who have either migrated because of wars, have lost their homes because of climate change, or simply because of this wealth inequality around the world are homeless. But why are, um, why are the governments not interested? Isn't it? I mean, why are the business? Because it, it costs money, right? Because it costs money. Well, and, so it is a, you know, it is commerce versus social responsibility. It's a, it's a commerce in a sense that the government, I think, should have a responsibility. Hmm. If not the government, the architects, if not the architects, the entrepreneurs, somebody has to step in and say, you know, we are in to to give our time and our, you know, life to so when to you're when, when you're in the moment of creation, if you will, um, I I can imagine if you want to carry this social responsibility and back to the the conversation about architecture being political, these questions are going to come up. You're going to say, "Hey, let's make this part affordable or 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 sustainable or or make it with something environmentally friendly and somebody who's funding the project is going to say no and you're going to be butting heads is that basically the story of your life at this point um most of the time yes because initially it may cost more so that's what i'm trying to say the regulations and the forms of practice or as such that everyone is set the way if you want to create change if you want to solve a problem of 150 million people, you cannot think the same way that we've been thinking architecture for 5,000 years. You cannot build with mortar and bricks. You cannot fund it only either privately or with the help of government. You need to bring people together to come. I mean, look at the way we are trying to go against climate change is not only with one way, to have electric cars is gonna have a big impact. Now, who would think that someone is gonna come like Elon Musk and say, we're gonna have, uh, I'm gonna make electric cars and these electric cars are gonna put all these you know, gas stations out of business, but we're gonna have like batteries that are gonna be rechargeable. We're gonna make new stations all over the world. I mean, these are very big, I think, imaginary, doable thinking that we need to be doing. I want to do that with architecture. And you you are doing that. I mean, you know, in terms of setting a setting an example, um, I was trying to think of, uh, there's a few things you've done around the world. So you tell me yeah. if this is a good example, but I was going to ask you about the Garden of Hope in Afghanistan. Maybe right. you can tell us about that in terms of reimagining what we can do with architecture, right? 
Yes, Garden of Hope was, uh, unfortunately, this was just right before Taliban took place, talking about politics changing everything. And there was a competition that potentially a government or a donor would um, give a very large and substantial um, piece of land um, for development to house women who have lost their husbands and therefore are breadwinners um, and you know often are attacked you know by other men and have nothing to eat and their children you know have to go and beg on the streets and so it, it was a very uh, important project to me but um, the reason we took over or this competition and wanted to participate mainly was because for the past five years being tired of again complaining to everyone and myself about homelessness and the number of people perhaps i don't know how it is like in toronto but in new york we have them everywhere yeah. and the situation has gotten worse with covid and yeah. you know people losing jobs and people living on the streets and you have seen los angeles photographs of san francisco i mean the government is putting money in but i think they don't have the clear idea of what would be the best way to go about it so they don't create other ghettos like how we had them before it's not just kind of creating homes or a condominium or a hotel these things need other amenities other uh, services that you need to provide and so i was thinking that perhaps one can create a home that this home is foldable so mm. it becomes flat and therefore you can move the home to different places in the world that is needed and you will not need a reconstruction and heavy duty workforce to put that up but again my dream is with the push of the button yeah um this home would open and then you can go in it and make a home out of it um there there have been a lot of attempts around the world to have machines that come in you know these 3d 3d machines that make homes um and these 3d machines are very time consuming to to build anything it's not tested that what the material they use for construction how strong and how safe it is because we haven't had one to go through a hurricane mm. or to go through a earthquake to see you know how they um, um how they perform and so and they're very very costly two hundred thousand dollars per simple unit that the machine you know has to take two weeks to build this to me is not a solution is one of the solutions that perhaps one could use as part of technology that is developing and um you know the other you know um things that we have seen is like you know government paying hundred and fifty thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per apartment for another apartment building to go up which is not necessarily of great quality and perhaps no one wants to live in there i don't know what it is and that's out of the question because that kind of money is not available everywhere and so um you know this this project that i have invented and now we have a patent on it and is uh, we are almost done with our prototype. It's called um, Folding Pod. 
I have a partnership with engineers and um, others who are trying to put this into manufacturing. If we can manufacture this pod, every family can have a home that is solid, that is beautiful, that has integrity, and it is going to cost somewhere between $7,500 to $10,000, which would be nothing for most governments or um, charities and uh, you know people who can help out. Um, but you know, for the five years, I have applied to every every foundation, every um, person that I thought maybe technologically would be interested, maybe they would help. No one has helped. So this is all purely, um, you know, from our sense of duty and sense of social responsibility. Good for you. Use our own energy and uh, you know, in a way, uh, time. They're it's it, they're really cool looking the folding pods. I mean, they're it's it looks it's very it's it's in, as an '80s kid, it's my movie version of the future. It's like Blade Runner or something. Seeing these uh, these folding uh, houses that you're that you're you're building. When when uh, just to get around some of the lexicon, understand what you mean. I, I think I know what sustainability means. What does holistic a holistic approach to architecture? What does that mean? Holistic to us means. Maybe I can give an example, actually. It's like when the doc, you go to doctors holistic, with holistic approach, they don't only look at one part or a symptom uh, of your problem, right. but they look at, in a way, they call it holistic medicine, Right. may coming from your mind. It may be coming from your body. So it's a body and mind coming together. So for us, architecture, you cannot just focus on a building or a part of a building or technology of a building, but they're all part of the same. It's about the environment. It's about people and environment coming together. So um, it's a multiple of different, you know, aspects of life that comes together. And uh, again, going back to my Iranianness, it's how life innovative and in a way artistic life perhaps was lived in the old times in Iran. Mm. You know, Omar Khayyam wrote poetry. He was a scientist. He was an astrologer. I mean, you don't need to know only one thing. You need to have a holistic idea about life and the world before you can in a way make parts of it because they're all interrelated. And so for us, holisticness is this interrelatedness of parts of people, architecture, and environment. I'm. That's first of all. I love that. I love a holistic approach to to life. And Omar Khayyam as an example. But um, also, I'm glad you came back to the Iranianness because that's where I want to end off. I'm so enjoying this conversation, but I know I can't keep you forever. That for, first of all, a little bit of a sidebar, if you will, but about Iranianness. It, it occurs to me on some level, you and your sister are perfect role models for Iranians because you're successful, you're well-spoken, you're a chut um, but you also deal in luxury. And, um, you know, I... Uh, Maybe it's because I didn't grow up in Iran. I don't know. I grew up in England and in and in Canada, and and it's not that I don't appreciate a nice skyline like we have in Toronto, but this obsession with the Dubai esque 
uh, luxury that uh, Iranians have. Where does that come from, do you think? Honestly, I think there are these Western ideas of what is good in life. I have asked myself, what is luxury? <laughs> and, you know, um, my description of luxury is very different from a lot of other people. Luxury is, unfortunately to me, unfortunately, not about glitz and not about um, having it all. Luxury definitely is about poetry. Hmm. And if I could create architecture in a sense that is three-dimensional poetry in space, to me, that is luxury. Because that kind of work impacts and holistically your soul, your spirit, your body, and your humanity. To me, being a human being um, is the luxury of life. <laughs> and um, I want to go back actually to Rumi, who I always go back and read it because it brings, brings us to luxury and also to perhaps this idea of um, everything being part of everything else in the world. Um, Rumi says, you are not, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in one drop. It cannot get more luxurious than this, to mm. feel that you are the ocean. And so I am hoping by mentoring, by talking, by, you know, being on social media, to help, to help everyone, to help the world and to help my fellow Iranians and fellow Iranian women um, to, to understand that, to understand their own value and how they are everything and they have everything. It's, they need to understand that, to feel complete and feel um, important. The Alvand office tower that you design stands in Tehran. It's it's breathtaking. I haven't seen it in person, just the, the photos, but I'm, I'm mesmerized by it. It's been called the jewel of Tehran. You, you posted a photo of it in February on Instagram and wrote to women life freedom. Um, tell me, tell me about that dedication of this particular building in Tehran. I am so uh, proud and encourage and feel more accomplished as an Iranian woman than as an architect when I see the fight that younger Iranian women have on the streets on a daily basis just because they want their rights and just because they want to, to have freedom to choose this is not about politics. This is not about the government. It's about being a human being. And so that has been going back to the start, more of a journey of me and my sister as women to start as young girls who want to, in a way, show the world that 
the inequality exists and we need to get rid of it because everybody deserves to be treated the same. Because of that, I have been very much, you know, pro Zandegi Azadi, Woman Life Freedom Movement. And I have no doubt that they will succeed because I'm telling you, leave it to Iranian women. They're gonna make it to the finals. <laughs> and, um, and I say that by experience. So um, I wish them well, and I want them to know that we, we in the West are doing everything we can uh, to be behind them and to encourage them not to lose hope. It's really wonderful getting to talk to you. It's actually very inspirational. And you're, you're, uh, you're a philosopher, aren't you? I mean, you, you approach things philosophically. You're like Chayam. You're the architect and the poet and the philosopher. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, that's been the greatest takeaway for me for this, from this conversation, that, that um, you don't sound or seem to approach things like, a, like all the engineers and uh and scientists and, and architects I know, but that you, you seem to really come at things philosophically. This was the best compliment I have ever heard. I don't come as close to even a fingertip of Hayam, but he has influenced us and we still read his poems. And I remember in Iran how, uh, you know, you would, open Hayam's book before you even leave your home to see what the day had for you in mind. And uh, I think we have engineering is much more about solving problems in a sequence. Uh, philosophy allows you to have a larger view of where you want to go with these little, little, you know, things that you solve in between. And so, yes, I do have definitely a view about where I want to go and what I want to achieve and why. And um, I always tell architects, especially architects in Iran, you have to have something that you want to say to the world. Mm. If you don't have it, then it becomes very difficult for you to in a way convey who you are. And so, yes, philosophy is important and you better start <laughs> working on it. <laughs> Thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jean. This is so wonderful. Thank you for having me. I, I uh, know you worked very hard to compile a whole lot of very interesting interviews with people that I admire actually and follow myself. So. To be among them is really, truly an honor. It's a great honor for us. I hope uh, to do this again and continue this conversation. It, would, it definitely wasn't enough. There's there's more. Hopefully we do it in person next time. Merci, Khudafis. There she is, the architect star, Gisu Hadidi. And um, thank you again, Gisu, joining from New York. This is Full Time for Rook for today. Thank you so much. For listening thank you so much for being part of this remember for all things rook related go to our website rookmedia.com rookmedia.com it is there that you can find all of our back catalog our 
every single one of our 287 shows, The Contemporary History of Iran, our Rook Funnies, our videos, it's all there, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Super Parisa, Bearded Omid, Savvy Roham, Smart Pega, Talented Anahita, Methodical Kabe, and Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizunbashi. Bashi.